You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Philippians chapter 2, and we will read verses 14 through 16 together, and then we will open in prayer. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow now before your word and ask that in the power of your spirit and in the person of your Son and through the revelation of your word, that you would change our hearts and conform us to be more like Christ, that you would, by your spirit, teach us this morning all that you have for us. Convict us, convince us, exhort us, and rebuke us where it is all appropriate. And may this time be to your praise and honor and glory as we behold in your word wonderful things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those verses that I just read to you, verses 14 through 16, have got to be, in my opinion, some of the hardest verses in all the New Testament to obey. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. So that made me pause this last week because had you asked me last Sunday, is that a hard command to obey? I probably would have said something like, well, yeah, probably difficult for some people, but not all that necessarily difficult for me. And I don't think that this is all that hard of a command really, really to obey. But this last week I had to pause for just a moment and ask myself, how often do I complain? I just want you to ask yourself that. How often do I complain? How often do I dispute? How often do I grumble? How often do I complain? And we have a little rule in my house, and the rule in my house is no whining. No whining. And we clamp down on that. You know that little four-year-old voice that kids slip into that, oh, I'm so hard done by mommy, I'm hungry, that voice? hate that voice. I can be in Walmart comparing two products side by side and looking and examining both of them deep in thought about how this product is going to improve my life. And five aisles over, I can hear a kid slip into that voice and blood vessels will start popping and I will go borderline stroke. My blood pressure goes up and I'm about ready to climb the nearest wall. I hate that voice. I've come to realize, though, that you don't have to use that voice to be a whiner or a complainer. And I've also come to realize just how deep-seated complaining is in the sinful human nature. Deep-seated. How many of you have ever had to teach your children how to complain? In my house, we have never had a single lesson on how to complain. No parent ever sits down and says, you know what, I have noticed a lack of something in this house, and it is a lack of complaining. So here's what we're going to do from... Beginning tonight, we're going to have four devotional lessons on how to complain properly. Nobody's ever done that. You've never done that. But I cannot tell you the number of times that I have had to speak to the subject of complaining in my home and to tell them not to complain. I've had to do that, but I've never had to teach them how to complain. 
It's like fingernails on a chalkboard. I would rather listen to fingernails on a chalkboard than whining and complaining because I hate it. I hate it when it's not mine. Isn't that the truth? Because I've realized I can listen to myself complain all day long. All day long. And I can listen to somebody else complain all day long if I agree with the complaint. But it's complaining that I don't agree with that really aggravates me. It's the complaining. I can complain about complainers. Do you do that? Complain about complainers. I'm complaining about complaining right now. I'm doing this. Because complaining is so inbred. It's so so much a part, of, almost a fundamental part of our sinful human nature. It's just there. Ask yourself this question. Instead of asking yourself, how often do I complain? Ask it in a different way. How often do you say something good or positive or edifying when everything goes as planned? You go into a restaurant, you get seated right away, you don't have to wait for your table. You sit down and the waitress brings you a cup of coffee. She shows up, she's never there too much. She's there just enough. There's plenty of of napkins available. They take your order, they get your order right, they bring it out, it's piping hot, everything is delicious. There's plenty of it there. Your cup never runs dry. The environment is perfect. You don't have to listen to some little brat, whiny, uh, crying, noisy little kid whose parents desperately need a whooping sitting in the next booth over right next to you. You don't have to listen to any of that. The environment is perfect. And then I ask you, do you comment on any of those things? No, you get up, you pay your bill, you give your extra 1% tip because it was a really good evening, and then you walk out the door. But let your coffee cup run dry one time. Let them bring your food out and not quite piping hot. Let them mess up your order. Let it take too long to get your order to you. And what do you do? I'm not talking about you, by the way. This is a little self-confession on my on myself because I do this all the time. We complain and we offer complaints about things. And there's no variety to the things we complain about. If I were to go around the room and I were to get just one suggestion from every person sitting here, give me something that we typically complain about. I'll bet that all of us could give a different answer to that and we would not have even scratched the surface. We complain about our culture, we complain about politics, we complain about conservatives, we complain about liberals, we complain about immigration, we complain about what's going on in Washington, we complain about our elected officials, we complain about our culture, we complain about Hollywood, we complain about the media, we complain about what's on TV, what's not on TV, we complain about what our kids are doing, we complain about church leadership, we complain about governmental leadership, we complain about our spouse, we complain about the weather. The weather, does the weather ever take a beating? And the Lord sent me a perfect sermon illustration just this morning. How many of you complained about the weather before you even got to church this morning in a grumbling, complaining way? Or did you wake up and say, joy of joys, I get to snowblow the driveway this morning. Joy of joys, I get to plow the entire road before I get to go to church. Did you do that? We complain, don't we? Complain about all those things and many, many more. Deep-seated. Do you realize that one of the first expressions of Adam's sinfulness after the fall was a complaint? What did he say? He complained to the Lord. He offered to the Lord a complaint. The same complaint that's found its way onto the lips of almost every married man since. It was the woman that thou gavest me, Lord. That was his complaint. What was, what was Adam saying? If you had not given this woman to me, we would not be in this mess. You thought she was a blessing? I heard you say it's not good for man to be alone. Now look at us. Here's where we're at. That's a complaint. He was questioning the goodness of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God. And the very first thing he did was complain about the woman that God had given to him. And we do the same thing. We are complainers. We are complainers by nature. So, how appropriate is it that the Lord would give us some instruction about complaining in Philippians chapter 2? It's appropriately placed in the book. You'll see that in a few minutes. 
It's good instruction. It reminds us of some things that we need to look at. I was thinking this last week. In the 11 years that I've been preaching, I've never once preached a full sermon on the subject of complaining. Now, I probably brought it up and referenced complaining or illustrated complaining in connection with other tests or texts, but I've never preached just one whole sermon on the subject of complaining in 11 years. Never come up like this. So, I'm going to make up for it. We're going to do two. Aren't you lucky? So this week, we're going to look at just what complaining is, and then next week, three reasons that Paul gives us for really not complaining, for living a life that's free of complaining. Now, some of you are going to complain about that. Oh, it took him two weeks to go through three verses. We're going to be in the book of Philippians longer than we were in the book of Acts. Well, we might, if you're lucky. So we're going to look today because verses 14 through 16 are really one core unit of thought. And the Apostle Paul begins in verse 14, and that's all the farther we're getting, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And then he gives us three reasons why we should live our lives free of complaining. So today we're just going to look at what complaining is. We're going to look at an Old Testament backdrop to these commands that the Apostle Paul gives us, which kind of sheds a whole a whole ton of light on this passage. And then we're going to look at why complaining is destructive to our own well-being. We're going to look at that. And then next week, we're going to look at those three, those three reasons why we should not complain. Now, for those of you who like to have like three really nice points that you can write down and sort of organize your thoughts around, I have nothing to offer to you this morning. No points. Some of you can complain about that. Two sermons, only one of them had good points. Next week, I've got three really good things. This week, we're just going to look at the subject of complaining. What is it? We're just going to look at this verse 14, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now, diving into verse 14, I just want you to observe in, for just a second the context and how it sort of fits in the context. It's, this is part of this ethical section that Paul began in chapter 1, verse 27, when he talks about living a life and conducting yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does worthy conduct look like? How are we to conduct ourselves in a manner that reflects the nature of the gospel and who we are as God's children? This is part of that. You want to know what worthy conduct looks like? It looks like living your life without complaining. That's that's the requirement of the gospel. That's one of the requirements that the gospel lays upon us, is living our lives free of complaining. You'll also notice from this reference that you, you might begin to suspect that the Philippians had a little bit of a problem with this subject of complaining. Have you wondered about that? Is it possible that within the congregation in Philippi, there was sort of this rumbling discontent that was starting to sort of circulate? Is it possible that Epaphroditus, when he came to the Apostle Paul in Rome, and he brought that gift offering that he mentions in chapter 4, and he also brought with it a report and said, here are all the good things that are going on in Philippi. But I need to let you know about a few things, Paul. There's sort of this underlying discontentment, this grumbling, this murmuring, this complaining that is starting to sort of take a foothold. That, I think that's a possible, I think that's a strong possibility. Since the Apostle Paul mentions it, you notice he doesn't belabor it, doesn't spend a chapter on it, he just mentions it. I think he's just throwing out sort of some loving, very brief correction to something that was going on in Philippi. If you look back in chapter 1, you remember he talked to them about striving together for the faith of the gospel, striving together and being of one mind and unified. Then you get into chapter 2 and it's all about do nothing from selfishness or vain conceit, but have the mind of Christ. And he talks about the unity of the Spirit that should be there in the congregation. Later on, you get into chapter 4 and you find out about these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, who could not get together and live in harmony. So I think here the Apostle Paul is just simply saying, do not do all things without grumbling and complaining. Just a straightforward correction so that the Philippians could understand, hey, here, this is what it is that we need to be doing. We need to do everything that we do 
without any grumbling and without any complaining. That should be enough to deal with Yodi and Syntyche. But Paul's going to bring it up again, chapter 4, verse 2, just to make sure that they get the point. He doesn't want them to go without getting the point. You also notice that it comes right on the heels of Paul saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You notice that? Because this is the attitude in which we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You can work all you want toward progressing in sanctification, read the Bible all you want, study it all you want, but if you will harbor in your heart an attitude of grumbling and discontentment, you will do everything you can to impede and slow down your progression in holiness. Show me one individual who you say, that is a holy man of God and a complainer. You point to anybody? Can you point to anybody who you say, that person is a chronic complainer and a holy person, sanctified person? You can't. Because if you're going to be a complainer, it is going to work against you progressing in sanctification. So how is it that you work out your own salvation? It is in this attitude. You do all things without grumbling or complaining. You also notice how the Apostle Paul switches the onus back on us since we just spent the last couple weeks looking at you do this, you work it out, and then what? God's at work in you, and now he's back to what? You do this, right? You work out your salvation, it's God who works in you, so you do this. Notice again that there's no conflict in the Apostle Paul's mind between what God wills and works and what men will and work. They go together. So he's back to talking to them. Now you do this. See, God's not going to stop your complaining for you. This is what it boils down to. You can sit there and read all day long. God is at work in you both to will and to work for your good pleasure. God may be at work in you, but you're the one who has to stop complaining. You have to do this. So now let's look at the passage. It says, do all things. Now that word all is at the very beginning of the sentence in Greek, meaning it's emphasized. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying all things, bolding it. All things you do without grumbling, and without complaining. How many things? All things. Now see, the word all there, the word all, I wish I could say it didn't mean all. I wish I could say that the word all there really wasn't in the Greek and it just said, do a few things. Do some things. Do the things that come naturally. Do the things you like to do without grumbling or complaining. It's that word all that just sticks right in my back. There's a lot of things I can do without grumbling or complaining. There's a ton of things I can do without grumbling or complaining. But I find that word all sits there at the beginning of that phrase and it just galls me and it reminds me how far short I fall of this. Can you think of one time in all of the book of Acts or in all of Paul's epistles where he complained about something? You say, I can think of a lot of times when he said negative things about someone or something or some event. Yeah, but can you think of a time that he complained about them? Now, how many of you have suffered as much as the Apostle Paul has suffered? And yet you never once read about him complaining about a single thing. Do not some things, but all things. That means that I am to submit to, in the world, my boss and those who are in authority over me, to the government without grumbling or complaining. I am to file my taxes without grumbling And without complaining, as difficult as that is, I am to file my taxes without grumbling or complaining. I am to vote in elections. I am to exercise my duties as a citizen. I am to conduct myself in business, in my environment, without grumbling or complaining. In the home, I am supposed to relate to my wife and my children without grumbling or complaining. I will say publicly that is a joy and it is easy to do. 
I will relate to my wife and my children without grumbling or complaining. And in the church, I am to do everything. I am to exercise hospitality without complaint. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. In the church, I am to submit to those who are in authority over me so that they may have exercise authority over me with joy and not as a burden to their souls because they have to give an account. I will serve other people. I will exercise my responsibilities in the church. I will contribute to the finances of the church. I will serve using my gifts, all without grumbling or complaining. So that in the world, in the church, and in the home, we do all things without grumbling and complaining. Does it sound too steep yet? Now listen, that sounds really difficult, isn't it? But if God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, and it pleases Him that you not grumble, then is it possible for a Christian to do all things without grumbling or complaining? It is possible. It's just that we like to complain. And it's just that we like to grumble. So we do them all. The word grumble is a really interesting Greek word. Gongosmos is what it is. And it's what they call an onomatopoetic word. You know what onomatopoetic means? It's a really big word. I sometimes throw those out just to remind you that I went to college. An onomatopoetic, an onomatopoetic word is a word that's, that means what it sounds like. Our English word, murmur. When you hear a murmur, what do you hear? Murmur. That's the idea. It sounds like what it means. Gungusmos. Gungusmos. That's the word grumble. It's that guttural, low-voiced, discontented, uh, grumbling kind of below the breath. Gungusmos. It's, it's a grumbling. It's an onomatopoetic word. Basically, grumbling is a negative reaction to something that's inconvenient, something that I don't like, something that rubs me the wrong way, and when I react negatively to it, I begin to gungusmos, grumble. I begin to have that sort of guttural reaction to it. It's a negative reaction. It's used three times, three other times in the New Testament. John chapter 7, 1 Peter uh, uses it, and I think in 1 Corinthians, if I'm not mistaken. Three other times it's used, and all three times it refers to not grumbling toward God, not lifting my face toward heaven, and complaining to Him. The word is used of me complaining at you or of you or to you. It's used of complaining to or about people. It's a horizontal complaining. Now in the end, all complaining to people about something is an affront to God because as you're going to see in a moment, it is... In the end, a complaint to God. Even though I'm addressing it to you, I'm really complaining against the person or the circumstances that are behind it. And that really goes right to God. That's why when the children of Israel complained to Moses, God said, they're complaining against me. Now you complain to another person, it's really, you're directing it toward the person. And I don't think the Philippians were doing a facing their face toward heaven and uttering these complaints to God. But any grumbling that you and I do to each other is in the end a complaint against God. And that's why it's sin. It's a gungusmus, the sort of negative, guttural, <clears throat> groaning, murmuring. And it's leveled at something horizontal. Your intention is not to go beyond the person that you're complaining about or complaining to, but in the end it does go right to the foot of God's throne. The second word, disputing. Do all things without grumbling. The second word, disputing, is Dialogismas, or logisma, which means it's a word from which we get our English word dialogue. It meant inner reasonings. It meant that thinking and that going over in my mind, churning over them. In your mind, you're debating something or disputing something. And over the course of time, the word disputing came to mean an outward argument. And you know how grumbling and complaining go together? Have you seen that? You know why they grow together? go together? Because when you grumble about something, what you then try to do is offer an argument to justify your grumbling. 
And so what you're really doing is you're discontent about X, and so you grumble to somebody, and then if somebody comes in and says, well, that's not true, you want to argue about it because you don't want to be seen to be grumbling out of Turner for the wrong reasons. So the grumbling, the inner disputings in the mind, the argumentation in the mind goes on. That's what goes on inside the mind and the spirit. And then what we express in our mouths is the gungusmas, the grumbling, the murmuring against somebody or something. So it's both what goes on inside the spirit. And God says, you do this. And you say, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's just. I don't think I need it. I'm going to find a way around this. This is not going to be the way I'm going to do this. And I don't really need to obey this. And on and on it goes in your mind. And then you try and justify the reasoning in your mind. And how does it come out? It comes out as a complaint, a grumbling against God. The two go together. That's possible for us to grumble in a lot of different spheres into a lot of different people. We grumble to people inside the church, back and forth to each other. It's poisonous, it's insidious, it's horrible, but it does happen. And we grumble. And I hear grumbling. I'm in a position of leadership, so I get to hear most of the grumbling that goes on. I get to offer a few grumbles of myself, just like Moses did. But I, we all hear grumbling. We hear it from one person to the other, this, this guttural, I'm discontent with this. If you're in leadership or if you've been in leadership, you hear it. Somebody says, I was in that church two Sundays before anybody even said hi to me. That's grumbling. I was gone for four weeks. Nobody called me, not once. I was sick, didn't show up. Nobody called me to say hi. Nobody called me to find out who I'm doing. That's a grumbling. That's a complaint. I was actually cornered in a store by one person. This is a couple years ago. Who would come here for a period of time, on and off for six, seven months. Maybe was here 12 times in the course of six or seven months. And then I saw her in Walmart, and she mentioned to me that oh, I was there, and I was gone for a, a month, and nobody called me. Nobody said hi to me. And so I went, and I went somewhere else. You know what I do with that? I'm, what, what am I going to do with that? Grumbling. I would ask myself in that situation, how can I be gone from a place for four weeks and have so little impact in somebody's life that I can be gone for four weeks and they don't notice? If I didn't show up here for four weeks, would you notice? Would somebody call and say, hey, where were you Sunday? Somebody would do that. People who have an impact in other people's lives are missed. But what we want to do is we want everything in the church to be about us and around us and what I can get out of it, not what I can contribute to it. And so when I don't get what I want out of this service between 10.45 and 12 o'clock, I complain about it. That's what happens. We complain not only to others, we complain to those in leadership. We complain about leadership, complain to leadership. For those who grumble and complain, leaders have this huge target right on their back. Grumblers love leaders, not because they love leadership and authority, but because they love targets. And grumblers want targets. And they want somebody to direct all of their complaints at. Somebody whose, whose chest or whose back can receive all of their discontentedness, all of their bitterness, all of their grumblings, all of their complainings, all of their nitpicking criticism. They love leaders for that reason. Grumblers love them. They complain to leaders. We also complain to those who are outside the church. And I have to wonder if this is what the Philippians were doing. They were suffering. Maybe they were complaining at the hands of their sufferers. Because Paul's emphasis here is on the wicked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. And he says you are to stop grumbling in order that your witness to outsiders might be what it should be. Maybe the Philippians were starting to grumble and complain about the suffering and the critics and the agnostics and the atheists and the people who were attacking them. Complain to people outside. It's an insidious evil. Now there's a whole Old Testament backdrop to this passage which Paul kind of lets us in on what that is in verse 15 when he says we are to appear as lights among a wicked and perverse generation. Paul gives two phrases. One, wicked and perverse generation. And second, children of God. 
Those two phrases indicate to us, because he's borrowing them from something in the Old Testament, it's actually Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 5 and 20, that the Apostle Paul uses those phrases from. Now here's what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 32. The children of Israel as a nation are right on the brink of walking into the land. So they've come out of Egypt, and for those 40 years they've grumbled in the wilderness. Then they get to the brink of the land of Israel. They are willing to, ready to step in and take the possession that God has given to him. And Moses is there in chapter 31, and he begins to speak to the children of Israel, and he says to them, You are a wicked people. You are a hard-hearted, uncircumcised of heart, rebellious people. You're just like your fathers. They were a rebellious and a wicked people. And Moses says to them, You have rebelled while I have been alive, and I am about to die, and when I die, you're going to rebel again. How did he know that? Because for 40 years he had put up with their grumblings in the wilderness. For 40 years he had listened to their complaints. And they complained about everything under the sun. So then after telling them that, he, he does this song. He, he composes and writes a song and sings a song in Deuteronomy 32. And he says, They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Now notice who who Moses calls a crooked and perverse generation, the complainers. He says, you people are complainers. You are wicked and you are a perverse generation. Then in Deuteronomy 32, verse 20, Moses says, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a perverse generation. Sons in whom is no faithfulness. A perverse generation. Now he had listened to all of their complaining and all of their bickering for 40 years. They were in Egypt. And they wanted out of Egypt. So they complained. And God sent them a deliverer. Did they stop complaining? No. When the deliverer came, they complained that they weren't being delivered fast enough because the burdens were worse than they were before Moses showed up. So they complained about that. Then they finally got delivered from Egypt and they're on their way out and they're out and they get to the Red Sea. Did they stop complaining? No. At the, at the brink of the Red Sea, they say, you brought us out here to kill us. We should just go back to Pharaoh. And they get through the Red Sea passing through all that water, seeing the mighty hand of God, did they stop their complaining? No, we have no water. Then it's no food. And then God gives them food and they complain about the food. It's not the food we wanted, not the food we expected. We wanted, we, out here in the desert, we wanted a shank of lamb and we wanted oxen, hamburgers, and where's our In-N-Out burger? And where's our A&W? And where's all these? We have food, but we don't have the type of food that we want. So they complain about the type of food that God gave them. They just continued to complain about everything. And every time the Lord corrected something, and every time Moses did something, they found something else to complain about. That tells you something about complainers, doesn't it? What is it? They will always find something to complain about. And you can fix whatever it is that they're complaining about, and what are they going to do? They will complain about the very next thing. Why? Because grumblers grumble, not because they genuinely need something or genuinely want something, but because they're grumblers. And that's what they do. And they are like, Black holes into which you can throw and invest a tremendous amount of time and energy and efforts and you will never satisfy a grumbler. Because they're complainers. And they're grum- and that's what they do. They just grumble. We just grumble. We're grumblers. And if the Lord gave us everything that we want, we would complain about what we have. Right? I did this with my van. found myself doing this with my van. You know the vehicle I used to have before I got my van? It was a hideous thing. It was really nice. It, it went, but by the time we started looking at having three kids, we realized I need a different vehicle than this because this thing could be a death trap. And it was on most roads. On roads like today, flying death trap. 
So we got the van, and now I got a van, and it's really nice, and it, the heater works, and all the good stuff that comes with some cars that were built after 1960, and all those wonderful uh, uh, accoutrements that come with a nice van like that, and now guess what I do? I compare my van to my truck, and I think, oh, I wish I had heated seats. I wish this were leather. I wish this were cleaner. I wish this didn't smell like that when I turn it on. I wish that this didn't happen when it did that, and I am now grumbling and complaining about my van, not discontent. You know what the problem is? The problem's not with my van. Who's the problem? Where's the problem with? The problem lies in my own heart, which is filled with grumbling and complaining, and I'm discontent, and I do it without even thinking about it. Grumbling is so much a part of some people's lives that we do it without even realizing we're doing it. It's just second nature to us. Like talking about the weather. Now let me answer a few questions about grumbling and complaining. Let me first let me first give you something that Spurgeon said. Spurgeon was talking about grumbling. I love Spurgeon. Spurgeon has a way of with words. The guy is just golden-tongued. He was wonderful. He was giving an anecdote about a couple of oxen that were pulling a cart down a country road. And as the oxen were pulling the cart, the wheels and the axles were squeaking and creaking and grinding and snapping and all of that, making all this racket. And finally, one of the oxen turned around and said to the cart, Why are you complaining? We bear all the burden. We're doing all the work. We're the ones that should be saying something and not you. And then Spurgeon followed it up by saying this, Those complain first in our churches who have least to do. The gift of grumbling is largely dispensed among those who have no other talents or who keep what they have wrapped up in a napkin. Ooh, I love that. That was good. Now, if you don't like that, you can complain to Spurgeon about it. Because I didn't say that, Spurgeon did. Let me give you something else he said. There are some who do little else but complain. They complain of the times, of the weather, of the government, of their families, of their trade. If for once they would complain of themselves, they might have a more deserving subject for fault-finding. Isn't that the truth? Now let me ask you a question. Is everything that I say that's negative a complaint? Is everything that I say that's negative a complaint? You're shaking your head no, and you're right. It's not. I say a lot of negative things every day that is, are not a complaint. I'm not grumbling about them. And so I spent a lot of time this last week just trying to think through in my mind, how do I know when I've stepped over the line between making an observation of the way something is and actually entering into a, a spirit of grumbling? Where, where is that line in my conversation? Let me give you some examples. I say to you, we have got a lot of snow this year, and it's not even the end of January yet. And you know how it can snow in February. And sometimes in the early weeks of March, we can get downpours of snow. And we've already got it. I've, I spent three days this last week snowblowing my driveway. Is that a complaint? If I say to you, my neck hurts, and my wife asks me, why are you walking like that? I say, my neck hurts. Is that a complaint? If we're talking about a football game, I say, that was a bad call. The whole, the whole game hinged on that call. Now, I'm going to watch football this afternoon. I guarantee you there's probably going to be at least one bad call in the two games that are this afternoon. Now, if we sit around and we discuss the bad call and the implications that has on the game and what went on and how horrible that was, are those complaints? You're hoping not, because some of you are still hanging on to Super Bowl 40, thinking, I don't want to know that I've been complaining for the last two years about some bad calls. The answer is no. It may be that I love snow. And I say, we've got a lot of snow this year, and it's not even the end of January. And I love snow blowing, and I do. And when I woke up this morning, I didn't offer one word of complaint about having to snow blow the driveway before I came to church today because I enjoy doing it. It's a fun thing. I think it's a neat thing, and it's a blessing. So that's not a complaint. Now, if I say to my wife, my neck hurts, that's not necessarily a complaint. It might be an observation just of the way that something is or what has happened or what has gone on. 
So when do I cross the line from an observation of a fact or a discussion about something negative that's happened or something I don't like that's happened into complaining? You know where the line is? Are those things complaining? The answer is they might be. You want something more definite? I can't give you anything more definite. But it boils down to the attitude of the heart. In my speaking of these words and offering this, I don't even want to use the word criticism, this observation or these facts or my words, what is the condition of my heart? Am I griping about the God behind the circumstances who has allowed them to happen? My observation or comment to my wife that my neck hurts today can be said without any criticism of God for allowing my neck to hurt or what happened that brought the pain in my neck. The observation that there was a bad call in the football game or that we've got a lot of snow or that the weather is not what we want, those type of observations may or may not be complaints depending on whom I'm directing them to and what the purpose of them is. And here's the question you've got to ask yourself. In my mentioning of this, am I trying to build somebody up or am I trying to tear something down? Am I offering a contribution to something or am I just criticizing something? And where is my heart going with this? In saying this, am I saying this because I'm seeking after my own interests or am I seeking after the interests of somebody else? Because there's no greater expression of the mind of Christ than to do everything without grumbling or complaining. doesn't mean you never talk about something negative. It means that even in the discussing of something negative, what we're doing is not the murmuring, the grumbling, that attitude of discontent that says behind it all, God, you are not good. You're not good. You know why, you know why complaining is a sin? And, and let me just tell you something. It is a sin. It's not a weakness. Sometimes you hear people say, yeah, I know I'm a complainer. I know I'm a critic. It's just my personal weakness. No, it's a sin. It's not a weakness. Try that with another sin. Yeah, I'm adulterer. It's just my personal weakness. You know, something trying to, <laughs> trying to get a handle on 10, 15 more years. I might get it under control. I'm a thief, but it's just my personal weakness. It's not, it's just my thing with me, right? And I'm trying to get a handle on it. No, you don't do that with other sins. It's a sin. And you know why it's a sin? It is a sin because in complaining, when we complain about somebody else, we're actually attacking the image of God in that person. And we are actually complaining to God about the person, what the person did, what he allowed to happen, the circumstances that surrounded it, what God has brought into my life. It's always directed against God. Even though you and I may never even turn our face toward heaven, we may never even think that our words are aimed at heaven. In reality, they are. And that's why complaining and grumbling is a sin. It's also a sin because it misrepresents God. Spurgeon said the idols, or the heathen, misrepresent God by worshiping idols. We misrepresent God by complaining. How do we misrepresent God? Because what we're saying is, you're not wise, you're not good, you're not gracious, and my rule on your throne would be more benevolent than your rule on your throne is. And you are not to be trusted, you are not to be obeyed, you are not to be worshipped, you are not to be honored, you are not to be followed without question, because my way is better than your way, and really what you ought to do is bend your will, the knee of your will, to my whims. That's what complaining is. And it is an affront to God. Now maybe some of you say, I'm not convinced. I really don't think complaining is a sin. I'll just read through the book of Numbers. Look for all the chance times that the people, children of Israel complained or that Moses complained, and then look at what the Lord did. And see how the Lord responded to it. Now, I don't want to depress you. I don't want you to leave here today and thinking, okay, I can't watch the game this afternoon because I don't want to make a negative comment about something. That's not what we're talking about. 
We're talking about that discontented grumbling toward the God of our circumstances, questioning His goodness, His grace, His providence, and His wisdom in allowing what He has allowed to happen and suggesting in our hearts and minds, I could do it better than you have done it. And I deserve better than what you have given to me. That's grumbling. That's the Ganga's mind. Now we've looked so far at what it is. Next week we're going to look at three reasons why we should not grumble. The Apostle Paul gives them to us. Three reasons why we should live a life that's free of grumbling. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we confess as your people that you are good, that everything that you do is good. You accomplish all your good pleasure. Our lives and our times are in your hands. And how can any man offer a complaint against you in light of his sins, as Lamentation says? And so we know that we deserve nothing good, and yet you pour out upon us the riches of your goodness. We are thankful for that. And God, give us the grace to hate sin in ourselves, to see it for what it is, to repent of it, and to purpose to live as lights that shine in this world of wicked and perverse people, that we may not be like them. We might not complain, that we might offer any grumbling to you, but that we might honor you with our words and our mouths and the intentions of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.